0: Hello. Um, well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, we are going to start. Uh, we're going to start the second of our creative writing workshops here at um, the LSC Literary Festival. Um, the official title is LSC's ninth. Space for Thought Literary Festival, and this year it's around the theme of revolutions. Um, my name is Winnie Emily. I'm a PhD um, researcher here at LSE, and I'm also a novelist, so I get very excited every time the Literary Festival shows up at the LSE because it's a chance to go from being an academic to actually looking at the world um, through the lens of um, literature and creative writing, um, which is a very important lens, and I imagine that's why you guys are here today. Um, so we're very excited to have with us um, our speakers for this session. Um, I'm just going to hand it over to them very soon, but um, Kavita A. Jindal, Catherine Menon, who also is published as C.G. Menon, and Reshma Ruiya are writers from the whole Kahania collective of British writers of South Asian origin, and they're going to explain what that's all about and the work that they've produced um, in the next hour and 15 minutes. Um, but just a few housekeeping rules um, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag it's right up there on the screen. Um, if you could please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the workshop, that would be great. And this event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast um, subject to you no know, technical difficulties. Um, after the talk, there's also going to be a chance um, for you to ask questions to the panel. And there will also be a book signing upstairs um, following the event. Um, so copies of Love Across a Broken Map, short stories from the whole Kahani, their, their collective, and Rain Check renewed by Kavita. Um, a Jindal will be on sale outside the Alumni Theatre. Um, but enough of that. Um, before, uh, before we hand it off to Reshma, if you could please um, join me in um, welcoming them to the table that they're sitting at right now. <laughs> Thank
1: you, Vinny. Can, can everybody hear me? Hi, so I'm Reshma and um, this is Kavita and Catherine and together we are part of the whole Kahani. The whole Kahani means the complete story and as Winnie said, it's a collective of um, writer, British writers of South Asian origin. We formed the collective in uh, 2011, and um, it's uh, it's a very eclectic group, you know, are novelists among us, short story writers, poets, screenwriters, um, and are sort of, uh, and we are at different stages of our writing career. And uh, what we do is we meet monthly, to workshop our short stories, to exchange ideas and opportunities about different, well, publishing opportunities and literary festivals, etc. And the anthology Love Across a Broken Map is really our first sort of collaborative effort. Uh, the the uh, anthology came out last year and it was published by Dalia Publishing, which was quite a, it's a small indie publisher, which meant that we really were very privileged and we had to take part in every stage of the process of putting together the, uh, the anthology. So it was really collaboration at its finest. And by collaboration I, meant, uh, I mean that we not only did we workshop each other's uh, stories, we also edited them, we talked about the different cover options for the cover, we uh, discussed jacket ideas, we discussed about the title, and we even cold-called different bookshops to, uh, to say that, you know, you know would you be mind placing a book? So we all played to our, uh, you know, our individual strengths. You know, some of us, you know, we found the place for launching a book as well. And uh, I would say that, you know, in terms of a textbook case of collaboration, our anthology certainly, you know, is a testament to that. Having said that, um, in terms of writing, you know, I mean, the whole thesis here is... Um, in writing, are two heads better than one? For many, I mean, writing provides a very unique and individual uh, occupation, you know. I wouldn't say it lends itself to a communal form of uh, create. you know, communal platform. And so you might ask, you know, uh, how on earth can we, you know, how, how do you collaborate on something which is such, um, uh, something that is your own individual voice and vision? How do you share it on, in a platform? And our aim today is really to demystify and examine how collaboration can work, and what, in what, in essence, is a highly insular and you know individual form of artistic expression. We'll be looking at three main forms of writing today. Um, I'll talk about the novel. Kavita will share her insights about poetry, and Catherine will talk about the short story. And also, she'll sort of go uh, in deeper detail about our anthology, you know, how we chose the stories. And the parameters, etc. So, um, and then finally, we will challenge your creativity. You know, uh, nothing too daunting, but you know, something to get your creative juices for, uh, you know, flowing. And after that, you know, once we've done our little writing exercise, there'll be time for Q and A. a Q&A, you know, and uh, I hope you know you've all come up with you know lots of uh, questions. You know, I look forward to that. So let's begin with the novel, you know. Now, a novel, you know, I'll draw upon my own experience as a novelist. I've written two novels, um, Something Black in the Lentil Soup and A Mouthful of Silence. And at the moment, I'm researching my third novel. And writing the novel has been a long process, you know. As you all know, know, it typically takes about three to four years. And I would say it's like a marathon punctuated with short sprints. But it's a marathon that you can only run alone, unless you're like James Patterson, you know, who has a sort of assembly line of, you know, humble, you know, little uh, scribblers, you know, uh, churning out, you know, airport blockbusters. But um, When I talk about the novel, I'm, I really mean it as a sort of your own individual work of um, love and, you know, toiling, you know, hours spent in front of, you know, staring at the screen. So it's just, it's your dialogue with yourself, with the world you carry inside yourself. But, you know, but before you um, reach, you know, before you reach a collaborative stage, which comes at a later stage, because a novel is not finished, you know, at the first draft, you know, it goes through several stages of birth and rebirth and also tiny deaths as well before it is ready to land at the publisher's uh, desk, you know, or the literary agent, actually, you know. But before you reach this stage, there are a few fundamental points, and um, I think it's quite worth reiter- uh, you know, worthwhile reiterating what these points are. It'll just save you a lot of heartache later when you come to the process of rewriting. And any mistakes you make at the beginning, when you first start writing, will be yours alone. So uh, I'll just briefly—I'll just go over, you know, what are the points when you're writing your first draft. You know, this is what you should be looking at. So right, at the core of every novel is a dilemma. So every story begins with an apparent problem or a conflict. So in my novel, A Mouthful of Silence, the central pro- protagonist is trapped in, his ma- in a marriage and a place in life, and he embarks on an affair. That, of course, is the surface, you know. Uh, what it really is about, it's his yearning to uh, regain the promise of his lost youth, and that forms the core of the story. So a dilemma, I would say, or a conflict drives the narrative. That's the, dri- the heart of the, you know, that's the machine, the engine that gets the motor running, you know. That's the narrative drive of a novel. And the purpose of the story will be to, usually to reveal a transformation. The plot and the characters, you know, however flawed or damage, need to be altered in some way. And the characters in turn need to be strong and multidimensional. You know, not cardboard cutouts, you know, so they should have some sort of quirk or they should be memorable in some way. So uh, let's say you've done, you know, you, you've addressed all these issues, you know. And now, are you ready to, you know, lead your child, your baby out? Are you ready to release it, you know? Because writing is a very lonely uh, process. But it doesn't have to be lonely, you know. In order for it to reach the next level, you know, in terms, uh, you know, at some point it needs to be shown and read. Otherwise, it won't blossom. But the question is, when and how do you get feedback, you know? And that's, when we talk about collaboration in a novel, you know, this is the core uh, point, you know, this is the fundamental truth that you can't uh, be too possessive and selfish in your novel. You know, the the whole idea is that you want to set it out into the world. And um, you could, of course, there are several ways of getting the feedback. You can show it to your spouse, your family, or friends. But the danger in that is that... um, they may not want to hurt your feelings, you know they 're too close to you in terms of you know emotions to be the first reader is not always easy, especially if they know that you 've dedicated a huge chunk of your life uh, to this novel. A writing group, therefore you know a writing group like the whole Kahani or a writing retreat is invaluable in my opinion. you know not only they you know they not only do they occupy neutral objective space but they can share, you know, they can, get, uh, they can give you advice and, and constructive advice. And you, of course, have to be, learn to be, mm, not take it personally, not get wounded, you know, not, you know, the whole idea is to step back and say that, yeah, look, you know, I can, you know, I'm ready to uh, accept and not accept. Of course, the choice is yours, you know, you might not agree, but at least you should be open to uh, criticism. If your proposal or draft has been accepted by an agent, then they can provide a critique. And um, also, if you have the time to enroll in a creative writing program, a course, you know, I, I think that would be invaluable. Uh, I have a master's and a PhD in creative writing, and I found uh, the advice that my supervisor and my peer group gave me was uh, uh, fantastic in terms of uh, aiding my growth as a writer, as a novelist. So... A novel typically goes through four or five, right, uh, you know, rights or drafts before it can be published. And you know, in order for writing to be really great, it requires a sort of lightness of touch. But um, and this, to, in order to get that lightness of touch, it needs editing. And this is where two heads are definitely better than one. The danger of not getting this second opinion is that you remain too attached and immersed in your work and you may overlook glaring you know, inconsistencies and structural f- flaws, you know. A detached critic will make you, you know, know the following. Have you made the reader care about the character and his dilemma? Is the story entertaining? Is there enough story to the story? Is the story different enough to catch a reader's attention? Does the story move fast enough? So collaboration in this form is uh, really, you know, editing your work, you know. A good editor can analyze your story, the, ho- uh, the what holds it together, the pacing, the dialogue, the plot, the character development, you know. So, for instance, when I was rewriting the second draft um, of my second novel, the editor kept asking me, but what is at stake? Why would this character want to throw away a safe marriage and lifestyle? So, you know, a pair of second eyes critiquing your work can make you look again, you know. I would say this is like a, a micro-overview of your work, of your novel, you know. What this would do is, you know, it, you, uh, the editor will say, uh, the editor along with you, you know, you need to see whether the narrative has a satisfying opening, a climax, a closing. Are there certain elements of work that can be moved to different locations of the text, expanded or omitted? In my first novel, I had to rewrite the ending because the editor wasn't happy with the open-ended nature. You know, she felt that a resolution was needed and, and I kept looking back and rereading my work and, I thought, and then I agreed that yes, she was right, you know. And whereas in my second novel, uh, um, the publisher, he felt that the last 20% of the novel needed to alter the, and I needed to flesh out the medal so that there was a progression. So it took me about five drafts to get the whole, uh, sort of, the, to get the balance right. And, of course, once you have the overall big picture, then you come to the nitty-gritty, you know, and that's also where, you know, another, a fresh pair of eyes can definitely help you, you know. Uh, in terms basics, you know, like punctuation, or are you relying on a particular word or phrase as a crutch? How often are you using adjectives and adverbs? Is the language you use reflecting the character's history, emotion, or vocabulary? So certain, you know, little nitty-gritties, you know, which... Uh, lend the, an authentic voice to your manuscript. You know, I think that's very important and something that we can really overlook, easily overlook when we are writing on our own. Two heads are also better than one in terms of when I, you come when your novel is ready to be sent out to a publisher. For instance, when I was writing the covering letter and the blurb for my novel, you know, I found the group was invaluable. You know, I think I had made my covering letter too long-winded, and they sort of pared it down. And also, it can also help you in other ways, I would say. Uh, It can help your growth as a novelist in terms of expanding your reading vocabulary. So, you know, you learn to be more promiscuous in your taste. You know, you can, a writing group can, or, you know, friends or a peer group can refer. You know, if you've always been interested in science fiction, they can say, well, have you, what about reading, you know, uh, a novel with uh, magical realism? And if you read aloud your work to a group as well, they can, uh, you know, sort of, you become more sensitive to the tone, pace, and the transition points of the narrative. So these are the different ways in which, you know, uh, uh, that a collaboration or sharing or uh, editing your work can add depth to your journey as a writer. So that's my experience that I've shared with you about, uh, you know, collaborating in terms of the novel. And now I'll turn to Kavita, and she'll talk... Uh, about her, uh, you know, collaboration poetry in the field
2: of poetry. Hi, everyone. I'm going to push back a bit so I can see you guys as well. Um, I'm going to talk about um, various collaborations and actual collaborations. So in the past few years, I've worked with um, musicians, visual artists, and filmmakers. And I've just picked three examples today to give you a flavor of what's possible in poetry collaboration and the first thing to say is it is very rewarding you can work with it can be two people collaborating or it can be more but the the more um, the more heads they are the more difficult it is but possibly more rewar- rewarding too i mean in the whole kahani we're 10 people in these um, poetry collaborations that i've done it's me and one other person usually you do have to start from a point of mutual respect. Um, you have to find common artistic ground. And you have to have a vision that you're both working for because the goal usually is to to produce something that is neither yours nor theirs, but something else that comes from your work. Um, and uh, so that vision or you know that common artistic ground is quite uh, important. And I'll probably say this at the end again, but you do need to... Learn how to be less precious about your own work and compromise because you can't reach you can't reach a collaborative goal if it's me 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 and this yeah. is how I do it. Um, <clears throat> so the first thing is a few years ago, um, a little machine, which is a, a, a sort of a pop group. I wouldn't really call them a pop group, but a musical group that sets poetry to music. Um, they then they're very popular now among the, among the poetry people, so which is of course niche popularity anyway because poetry is niche. Um, but um, they were producing their first CD, and although they had lots of um, big names and they had old classic poets they were using, they did. One of them liked one of my poems um, entitled Santa Fe, and um, he he's called Steve Hallibel. He set it to music. Um, it was a great tune. I liked it. So when he said, "Could I, could we put this on our CD?" I said, "Fine." And it was sung by Walter Ray. And when I heard it, I, I was thrilled. I said, "Oh, wow! This sounds great." But he had said to me, "Can we, can we fine tune it, or can we change it to, to make it?" Because I'd done a poem, that was for the page, and he obviously wanted to produce something that is to listen to. So it's quite different. And although I'd heard the tune, I never heard my poem on the tune until I heard it when it was. Done, more or less. I was a little bit of a shock because um, they'd added phrases, um, they'd added a, a chorus because the song needed a chorus. I, of course, hadn't written a chorus. As I say, I'd written something for the page, and I'd written this in Santa Fe because I was in somniac there, and I had these feelings of these spirits and ghosts around me in this adobe house. But he made it into a love song because that's what worked. So I'm going to read you the the. Just a bit of it, just the, what they call the first stanza, including the chorus, which I didn't write, but, uh, you know, it's fine. So, <laughs> heavy. <laughs> he- heavy glass paperweight on my chest as I lay down to sleep keeps the eagle spirit held that flutters round to weep. I dream of a raven bathing, dream of the rusty hills and the whip lizard flicking its tongue at the moon on the hill. Oh, Santa Fe, Santa Fe, my love has gone. Oh, Santa Fe, Santa Fe, the nights are so long. Now, I'm not singing it because I can't sing, but that bit, you know, so you can see that would be a long, drawn-out chorus, and that gets repeated, and so they added on stanzas that I hadn't written. Um, And... um, I was like, yeah, sure, fine. That's <laughs> so it's quite nice to have a song. But you, you know, if I'd said no, that isn't that isn't my poem, it wouldn't have worked. Um, and the the second kind of collaboration I've done is um, with a, a she's an artist who also makes short films called Caroline Arescope Jones. And the first two films she did were more straightforward. Um, so uh, we call them poem films but they're also called poetry film or film poems, and everyone who does this sort of thing distinguishes what they do by having a little tweak of the name. So ours mm-hmm. are called, called poem colon films, you know. Um, but um, the first um, uh, two, as I say, she picked two poems that she liked, uh, Parakeet and Chaining the Ecstatic, And um, she had me in her, uh, I was was visiting her one day, and literally with her iPhone, she recorded me reading them in her garden, so really very low tech. Uh, But then she added on images from Sweden, from Hong Kong, and also from um, um, England, which she felt fitted, whatever it evoked in her, which frankly, I look at those things and think, I don't see, the parakeet, for example, doesn't have a bird in it. It's just these plants in Hong Kong that are serrated leaves, like a not a cactus, but sort of a tropical plant, and she saw the parakeet colour and the wings of the parakeet in that plant. So this film, and her style is very slow and subtle, so it's a very slow, subtle film of um, scenery, Mm -hmm. but different kinds of plants and things. With me, with that quick, I never got a chance to redo that reading. I was saying, oh, my voice doesn't sound right, but she'd just done it, you know, and put them up on YouTube or somewhere. Um, And then she came to me this year, Oh, sorry, we're in 2017, so not this year, last year, <laughs> with, um, uh, with a small commission. Um, she um, lives near Turner's house, the one he, in uh, Teddington, which, which he bought, you know, Turner the artist when he was a young man. And uh, he then sold it, but it's still in its old state, or was. And then, um, I don't know if you heard, but raised some funds to um, restore this house and make it into a museum of Turner and a restoration of seeing what his house was like back in in the day. Um, It's by the river in uh, Teddington. And she, because she lives near it, she visited it quite often. And she realized when she saw the plans of the restoration that there was going to be the things we need nowadays, which is, you know, wheelchair access or the things that are required for any, public institution. So wheelchair access, possibly a little um, a area where you can buy things or whether it's a coffee or whether it's something to raise funds for the actual house. And of course, his old cottage doesn't have any of that. You open a little gate. Mm-hmm. It's a dilapidated house with a garden. The land has been sold, a garden at the back. But some of the trees that he had are still there. Um, and the, the in the ceiling, there's a... Skylight, um, stained glass skylight that Turner installed himself because he uh, designed the house, although it's a little cottage. Um, so she did a film of the house in this dilapidated state and with an old-fashioned camera, and she did it at dawn and at dusk. So the light is lovely. It's a violet light at dawn. I couldn't believe that was London light because London is you know usually grey, but at dawn, yeah. it's seriously violet light from in this camera. So it's very beautiful. Again, it's a very slow, subtle film. And she said to me, I want a poem to go with this. So I wrote her. I wrote her mm. several poems, frankly. We wrote, I wrote about three poems. And the end result, um, it, she wanted something disjointed. And I said, no, I write something. Usually my style is to write something with a narrative or make some sense. It can be, uh, you know, it, it can roll along, but it's, um, it's not disjointed. But what she did was she took these words I'd written and she chopped them up. And she only picked a few because she said, um, the film, by the way, is called With Heart as Calm as Lake That Sleeps. I think it's a lovely Mm -hmm. title. Mm -hmm. And then he goes into the house. um, And um, with these images come these words. And I'm going to read the words to you. They make no sense. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. when you see the film, she wants to provoke a certain response. She wants that you are looking at this you know his his yellow walls, and the words come seeping through, and you need to think something you need to think of again it 's that evoking that spirit of the house so i 'll just quickly read the script to you as as the end script. this is you know what she ended up with after chopping out most of what i 'd written, so it was my words but not the way, not the order that I wrote them in, so with heart as calm as lake that sleeps, this was the house of J. M. W. Turner. overlapping with all who stepped here through shredded boughs what more but light and shadow a corner of one's own remnants of thought seeping in tracing through a house of vapours a garden a home to share with father Whose intent inhabits these landings? That's only the first bit. But you see how it's, it's about the spirit of it, really. Um, so I couldn't be precious about that. Um, and I think the last um, collaboration I'm going to talk about is, uh, was with another visual artist called Paul Wincher, who lives in the same neighborhood of me, and that's Barnes in London. And he approached me early last year because he wanted to do an exhibition called The Streets of Barnes. Now, he was painting the actual streets and houses of Barnes, and he said to me, could we do an exhibition that had poetry and uh, art together locally? Um, At first, I I was a little bit uh, hesitant, only because I had quite a busy year, and I said, you know, I don't have time to write... Uh, poems on these streets, much as I would like to research, because it's actually very interesting how the streets of London are named, because people, whoever owned them, had reasons why they picked their names from Scotland, because they were from there, you know, things like that. But I didn't have time uh, to, to write so many new poems for this exhibition, so I was a little bit hesitant, but I said, I, could, I don't think it's going to be quite exactly what you want. But I sent him um, some poems, uh, two of which I'd started, that were about Barnes, or about the bridges. It's called The Path Between, and it's about the walk Mm -hmm. on the towpath between Hammersmith Bridge and Barnes Bridge. And I sent him others that I'd written in my garden. Uh, simply because that's, um, I, that's drawn from the environment in Barnes. In fact, Parakeet, the poem that Caroline used for a poem film, was written in my garden because, you know, in Richmond and um, Barnes there are parakeets um, flying around. So whatever I noticed in my garden, and I sent him those, and he said, yep, yeah, fine, i fixed picked six, so we're going to do this. Um, because he painted every day while I carried on with other things, but he knew which six you know, he, poems he wanted for the exhibition. And this was a real um, learning curve for me, because when we went to do the exhibition, he's used to hanging up his paintings and knows what he's doing. But I had to put text on the walls, because we, this was definitely, he wanted it to be equal parts mm-hmm. text, an equal part, it was not one is more important than the other but uh, really a collaboration where both things were going to be equal so I had not ever learned how to put text on a wall so it was a you know a learning curve, we had to find a graphic designer, we had to find a production company and it was a fiddly thing to put like they do in the museums to put mm. six um, poems on the walls and doors and around it he hung his paintings um, but what people came and said uh, that Everyone who came to the exhibition really enjoyed it, and we heard got feedback from the art centre more than we thought they would, because they said, you know, whether they related to the art or whether they thought that style of art, which is kind of you know particular style, is their style or not, or whether they related to the poetry or didn't ever read poetry, the two things together, really made it very interesting for them in a way they didn't expect, because it wasn't machi-machi. You know, it was different styles and themes, but the same topic. Um, and so the response was very good. And I just wanted to say that because this uh, session is called From Laptop to mm-hmm. Bookshop, I wanted to show uh-huh. you, this was our souvenir program uh, for that event. And we produced it... Simply because obviously the paintings are all different sizes on the actual uh, day, and as you know, the poems were on the walls and the doors of this art center. But um, we produced this as something to sell, and that people could take away because the exhibition was only on for a, a month and a half. They could take it away as something to remember because, and Barnes people we thought would like to, see, uh, they wouldn't buy a painting, but they might like to see these, you know. Um, these images again, so oh, that 's us like you know there was uh, big paintings and things, so we produced this, we sold it as a three pound um, souvenir program on on just at the launch, mm-hmm. and then uh, people were interested in it, those who hadn 't come to the launch um, that 's the poem parakeet. So the bookshop stocked it. So laptop to bookshop. This was done on Paul's laptop, um, and uh, it went into the local bookshop, and it's still there, mm-hmm. you know, as people pass by if they're interested in barns, and they think, oh, yeah, what's this? And they, they pick it up. So it's, it's, um, it's really good. Uh, I guess I just want to end by saying I do have a page of links, because I, do, I only have six, but maybe they can make copies yeah. if anybody wants them, because I mentioned all these things, films and things where you can't see them, Um, I can give you this page of links. Uh, And um, I was going to say, when you collaborate, yes, I guess there's two big things. You need to trust your collaborator and in their standards. You need to know you're working to your standard, and you have to hope they're working to theirs. Because I did have, with all of these artists they were very firm about what they could see, how they wanted to do a layout of something or what they wanted to do, and they would completely forget grammar and editing. And then I would go, no, no, no. You put a colon where, or a semicolon, like in the film, where there shouldn't be one. You know, but they don't see that. That's my business. So I would go, no, 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 we've got to change this. So really, um, collaborating is just like being in a workshop. It's the art of giving and accepting criticism Mm -hmm. in the belief that you're aiming for the best you can make make it, whatever the project is. Um, so that's really what we're interested Thanks, Kavita. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to hand around. over to
3: Catherine. Catherine. Okay, thank you, Kavita. Um, can everyone hear me? Great. Uh, so I'll be focusing on collaboration when writing short stories. And uh, there's two. Two prongs that you've got, two legs of attack that you could take here. Uh, firstly, collaborating on individual works, so people coming together to write one or a couple of short stories. And secondly, uh, putting together a thematically cohesive collection. So I'll mainly be focusing on the latter, putting together a collection from individual writers, uh, with a couple of tips for the former. And looking around, I do recognise some faces, so I know that some people here do have a lot of experience with writing and perhaps with collaborating. So do feel free to shout out and share your experience, or if you disagree, um, that would be really interesting. So, so do feel free to do so. Um, so the first thing to consider when you're putting together an anthology is choosing a theme. So do you want it to be a themed anthology or don't you? Um, it's, there's there's a li- a sort of a little bit more complication to it than that, because you have to consider things such as the wider implication of the theme. So do you, as a group, want to be identified with that theme in ten years' time, when someone picks up your book and says, ah, you're women writers, or you're writers of colour, or you're writers from bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for our anthology, Love Across a Broken Map, we did go with a theme that was actually chosen by the publisher, which was Love, Loss, and Longing. And most crucially, although we are a group of South Asian writers, we deliberately felt that we wanted to step away from that as writers. So there was no compulsion to write a story set in South Asia or a story with a writer of colour, anything like that. So the settings of the stories did in fact vary wildly across the globe. Uh, One thing to think about as well is playing to the strengths of your writers. So Our theme, Love, Loss and Longing, was a relatively cerebral theme, so it lends itself to writing about reminiscence, about nostalgia, about poignancy, uh, all of which we do actually quite like to write about as individuals. So those of you who've read Reshma's novels or Kavita's poems have probably picked that up. Uh, I have been involved with a couple of other anthologies that didn't take that approach, uh, in particular anthologies that concentrate on comedy styles. Um, comedy can be really difficult. Uh, putting together a group of, of stories that your writing group finds comic can be really good or it can backfire horrendously. Um, I'm not very good at writing comic stories, so I won't, I won't comment further on that, but it can be difficult to put together... Uh, to put together an anthology that doesn't get old very fast if it's comic stories. Uh, The next question is, how literal should the theme be? So, for example, um, if you take a theme like Love, Loss and Longing, does that mean every story should follow a similar plot where someone falls in love and then loses it? Uh, We felt the answer was no, Uh, but obviously it's your own anthology. You can do what you like. If you feel that you want the plot to be cohesive, that's absolutely fine. Um, what we thought was a good litmus test is to give the rough draft, so the, the, the proof copy, to a couple of readers. Um, we felt that all of the readers should be able to discern from that what they think the theme is. So without being told, they should be able to say, the theme of the anthology is this. Mm. However, crucially, they shouldn't all agree on that they shouldn't all say that they think the theme is the same thing, because if they do, then you've gone too far down the realm of being, being trammelled by that. So we actually ended up interpreting it very differently. So we had stories about romantic love and loss, about sexual love, filial love, platonic love. We even had a couple of people writing about fandom and obsession with stalkers. So quite a lot of differences there. Um... A logistics problem is actually word limits. So if you're putting together short stories, you have a fairly strict word limit so that someone doesn't run on and take, take half the book. <laughs> Some themes will lend themselves better to short word limits than others. So personally, I've found that a very short limit for things like historical fiction and personal lived experiences can sometimes be very difficult to to fit because <coughs> those things require a little more detail and a little more of the personal touch. So moving on then uh, to the format of the collection. So it's also just worth taking a step back. I have all been talking about an anthology here, but this could be a radio broadcast or a a collection of of artworks and and stories together, anything like that. But you do need to decide on a format. So the big question, the elephant in the room, is how many stories from each writer in your, your writing group? And what if the group can't agree? So we agreed on one story from each writer and I think it's important to have a very clear expectation on whether this is exactly one story from each writer or maximum one story but if a writer doesn't submit something that's good enough then they're out. Uh, that can be very, very tricky to navigate as a writing group. Um, I, I, I would like to think that we managed yeah. it. I, I hope we did. Um, it did take quite a number of iterations. And you do have to be willing to say that if a story isn't good enough, then it won't make the cut. So th- there's a, a, a qualitative difference in approach. Are you putting something out Uh, with the idea of putting out a very good quality anthology or are you putting something out to include every member of your writing group? And there are pros and cons for both but um, it's really important to make sure that all your writing group understands which approach you're going for before you spring it on them. Um, Important things uh, to consider are things like house style as well. So should you italicize non-English words? Uh, That was a big thing for us because, yeah, obviously as South Asian writers, a lot of our stories did have them. Um, We decided not to do that. um, And the publisher will often have quite a lot of input into that. One thing that I would say really steer clear of is phonetic spellings. Mm. It's fine for one short story of 2,000 words, but if you have a whole anthology of people Mm. speaking exactly as it would sound, Mm. it can get very old very fast.
0: Um,
3: Ordering the stories is another tricky, tricky sort of theme. You do want a strong start and a strong conclusion, but you also want to ensure that the anthology doesn't drag in the middle. So a very strong story could work quite well in the middle. You also need to consider small scale. So do you want to have two very similar stories next to each other? Or you might be very ambitious, which we didn't do for this anthology, but it would be brilliant if someone's done, which is organise your anthology so that it itself tells a story. Mm. Perhaps it tells a story of love growing and then dying and diminishing. We didn't do it, but I would be fascinated to hear about people who have. Um, there's also a little bit of tricky water to navigate in terms of the coveted first place and last place in an anthology. Um, firstly, I, I think it's silly. I think that a story's place in the anthology shouldn't be determined by the best story is at the end or at the front or whatever. I think it should be chosen on the merits and, of each story and how they work with each other. But, at the same time, if you have a celebrated guest author uh, who's agreed to contribute a piece, um, uh, you you might want to put their story first up front. Um, Now, moving on to the more collaborative aspect in terms of workshopping. uh, Workshopping can go loads of different ways. So, if you're all part of writing groups, you've almost certainly got your own style for how to workshop. But if you're intending to put together an anthology, you might want to consider things like, should you come up with initial ideas at a workshop, or should writers bring fully-fledged stories for editing? Um, it's, it's often, it is worth considering the idea of using story prompts and writing exercises. So we're going to go through a very uh, short one, and I know they can seem a little bit dull, but some of our best stories were actually sparked by that. So I'd say really consider that. Um... It's also worth contemplating whether your authors can work on the same stories. So could two authors work iteratively on a couple of stories to refine them, to advance them? I think you could, but I'm not personally convinced that's a very good idea. I suspect you might end up simply with two very similar stories. Uh, A friend of mine, a very good writer called Sarah Saab, has actually given her tips for collaborating on individual short stories. So she's made quite a specialty of this, which I think is quite rare. As short story writers, we tend to focus on our own stories and then bring them together. Um, The first thing she said... To consider is logistics. You need to either be able to meet up physically or meet up virtually. So, if you're in Britain and your collaborators in Australia, mm. um, you're going. Somebody's going to have to become a morning person. Mm. So, it's a, uh, a a sort of trivial thing to think about, but it can actually affect how well your story turns out. Um, the other thing to think about is your writing processes. So, some people like to hammer out a first draft, uh, just bash it out, get words on a page, and then edit later. That is not going to work if your collaborator likes to judge every single word first. You will fight, and you will argue, and you will end up throwing the thing in the bin. So um, you need to to come to a sort of neutral ground in terms of your writing process. And unfortunately, in practical terms, that means that neither of you will really feel at home when you're doing it. But on the other hand, that can spark really good ideas. Sometimes getting out of your comfort zone is exactly what you need to do. Uh, The other thing she said to think about are pros and cons. So your collaborator can unstick you when you've got in a rut, Mm -hmm. but they can also steal the story away from your strengths. So you Mm -hmm. need to know when to push back on that. Um, this is true for editing as well. So constructive criticism versus praise versus unconstructive criticism. You need to know, when you're giving feedback, you need to tell the, the author what to leave in as much as what to take out. So sometimes you'll get feedback from somebody and it'll be a list of things that were wrong. And you might think, well, was there anything right? In, and so in implementing that feedback, you could actually remove the strengths of your story. Now, touching very briefly on feedback, this isn't the place to go into it in a whole lot of detail, but I have heard some people in writing groups say they don't see the point of feedback. Why would I give feedback to somebody else? No benefit in it for me. And quite frankly, all it does is make their story better and now they're going to win that competition. <laughs> which, <It's horrible. laughs> not our writing group, no, I should end. say. But <laughs> <laughs> no, this isn't the, from the whole Kahani. But th- there is sometimes an antagonistic uh, relationship that can develop. Uh, now, firstly, I disagree wholly with that. Mm. I think reading stories and giving feedback is the best way to grow as a writer. Um, More practically, if you're working together to put an anthology together, you want every story in that to be good. So if a story's weak because you thought, oh well, I'll I'll make Kavita's story not quite as good so mine looks better, (laughs) (laughs) then that will drag down the whole anthology and it'll make your story look worse. Um, it is also worth mentioning that that's the case with competitions as well. So, um, I don't know how many of you have heard of the Willston Herald competition, but it's a, a sort of fairly fairly well-regarded short story competition. Uh, in 2007, uh, Zadie Smith was the, the judge for it, and she felt that of the stories that were sent to her for shortlisting, none of them were good enough to merit the prize. So she said, actually, I'm not going to award a prize for this. So obviously not, not the best for writers who had thought they were on the short list. So generally, um, give good feedback. Don't try and drag other writers down. I'm, I'm sure you all know this. Um, I suspect we're getting pressed for time. So just to to wind up with, um, uh, uh, Reshma and Kavita are going to introduce a quick writing exercise. But just to sort of wrap that up, in terms of why collaborate, um, it can spark an idea that you wouldn't have had. It can save you a lot of time by having someone point out a flaw uh, beforehand. And finally, most important, writing is really lonely. You're stuck in a room by yourself, churning away at draft after draft. And it can be fun to get out and meet some real people <laughs> instead of the ones in your head.
1: Right, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. Thanks, Catherine. So I think now we'll come to the part where you play the active role. We've got thought of a writing
2: mm-hmm. exercise. We, I think, Kavita, you want to introduce yeah. that? Yeah. So we're just okay, going to do a quick blast of writing. writing, It's going to be really strong writing. Um, You're not, you can be completely honest, you're not going to read it out, you're not going to show it to anybody. So it's going to be really strong core stuff. Uh, What we want you to do is use an emotion as fuel because it's what we do. So for example, when when I'm really angry about something, when I'm really furious, it makes me write something. Now that anger and fury doesn't come out in it necessarily. Sometimes no. it might be something funny or sarcastic or, you know, saying something about something else. But the the reason for writing is, so if, yes. for example, you know, my personal bugbear, if something happens that makes me think, God, this situation is really hypocritical, I'm going to write a story, but that person will be my protagonist, something mm. like that. So I want you all to focus... Think of an emotion. I'm, uh, we all, you know, any emotion that makes that is a strong emotion for you. And when we've all picked an emotion, then I'm going to give a signal, and we're going to write for about five minutes. So, as, you know, for example, as I say, I write from a place of anger sometimes, if that works well to fuel uh, really strong writing. Um, what about yeah. you?
1: I write from a uh, place of regret. Not personally, I'm not regretful <laughs> about anything, but it's you know, an emotion, regret plays you know. a strong, you know, it's an underlying theme in most of my fiction. So, and Catherine,
2: what about
3: here? Um, most of my stories center in some way around nostalgia. So the emotion I'm going to go with is nostalgia.
2: Um, so what we'll do is give you one minute to think about which is a, your really strong emotion. I'm just going to yeah. give you a minute, and then I'm going to see if anybody yeah. wants to share, because we've got three down there, which is the yeah. anger, <laughs> nostalgia, yes. regret. And we'll see if anybody else has an emotion that they work with, and I'll read them all out before I do the five minutes. Because what you can do is, um, well, first think of yours, and then I'll tell you where you can. <laughs> do. So so think of an emotion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyone yeah. want to start with? Does anyone want emotion? to shout out an emotion that Fear. that? Share. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Any. Angst. Angst. Good one. From this side,
1: anybody? Stress? Yes. Stress? Okay. So was there one there? Suffering. Suffering is great. Oh, gosh, we are a very <laughs> big <upbeat> group today. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, it's hard to write yeah. joy, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. Have yes. yeah. to say joy is overrated. There's usually no, sto- there's usually no story. <laughs> if there's <laughs> joy. Yeah. So, and does anyone else want to it's share an emotion? Something, yeah. Excitement? Excitement. Excitement, okay. Is good. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so do, if Catherine reads so them out, yeah. then I'll, say, I'll give you the next
3: instruction. Yeah. Yes, so I'm just going to read these out, um, try and memorise them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll write them down. I'll, I'll write them down. Uh, we've had anger, regret and nostalgia uh, from Kavita Reshma and me. We've had fear, which is a really strong one. Mm. Angst, which I think you could really get some, yeah. <laughs> some mm. deep writing out of that. Stress, which I think we can yeah. all relate to suffering, mm-hmm. which is a, a really good one in terms of the depth you can get, and excitement. they have had a positive yeah. one, positive which is great. Yeah.
2: <laughs> okay, so what um. I'm going to say to you is pick the emotion that you thought of, which is fine, if that's your fuel and works for you, or pick one of these, You'll, you mm-hmm. can switch. And this was kind of a bit of a collaboration, bit just to see if someone else can spark something. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you five, five to seven minutes uh, this is something for you to take away. So no one's going to read it. No one's going to share it. Write really mm-hmm. truthfully and keep it as something you can work mm-hmm. on later or for yourself as a memory. Okay. today. But yeah. please, um, please, go yeah. now. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: It could be anything. Oh, yeah, be okay. anything. But, oh actually, yeah. you can do story, yeah. no, poetry, <laughs> Yeah, song, anything, yeah. Anything, anything. A haiku anything, or something. Yeah, anything. anything. Absolutely. Even anything an image, like, actually. Yeah. You, yeah. Can do yes, you can do A visual representation. Yes, if <laughs> you can draw. you can draw. You can do disjointed yes. words, yeah. Yeah. you know, that yeah. will yeah. work. That's oh, <laughs> okay. All right, we can stop now. Yeah. We gave you, I think, um, slightly more than five minutes. But I hope you, or those of you who are writing anyway, got, got into something there and okay, yeah. um, used an emotion. So I'm going to hand back to Rishma to yeah. move Great. on. Okay, so
1: I I hope you found it uh, both challenging and rewarding. You know, It's a little window for you to express your individuality. And tempted as I am for you to sort of shout out and share, but maybe, you know... I think I probably with uh, the time constraint as it is, uh, we'll probably just move on to questions. Any questions, please? Any? Yes, please. Yeah. I have
2: uh, a bit. Why are you, uh, uh, are you all women and are you all...
1: Society? We are definitely yeah. all women. The <laughs> so yeah. three of us, at least. Yeah. Oh, in our group, well, we are... We have ten of us, and uh, actually we do have two male members in the group. But so it's
2: not... To it be a salvation group, a collective. Yeah. But I'm yeah. asking that because sometimes I've, I was a part of the Singapore Writers' okay. in right. and, right. and I found all the people from all different yeah. backgrounds and was sites like exciting eh? and yeah. limited. I would feel really limited if I had an expert writing. Yeah, Yeah, that's an interesting point. With us, I have to say that we're from about five different countries and five different religions and cultures. So actually, even though it's a South Asian collective, it's quite a a diverse um, group. But the reason for it, I think, is... um, Do you remember why the collective... I think the (laughs) main reason was uh,
1: (laughs) we felt that, you know... um, South Asian writing in contemporary Britain wasn't getting the, um, uh, so the uh, wide platform that it deserved. It wasn't really as visible as it should be. So we wanted to blend our voice. And also there was a sort of almost like a clique of established writers who were hogging the limelight for want of a better word, you know. And all the publishers, et cetera, were, it was very much... Uh, a club, and as uh, writers were relatively at the start of our journey, we thought as a collective, you know, we would increase our bargaining and strength and also a- help each other. So it was like a form of solidarity as well as a creative platform.
2: Yeah, so about yeah. more time. Just follow yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. what
1: you said. So mm-hmm. What is South Asian writing? What is South Asian writing? I think South Asian writing, of course I know that we shouldn't really pigeonhole any, you know, all writing is universal. All, like, you know, emotions are...
2: Yeah. There was not enough attention for South Asian writing, so I you, oh, you went from the background.
1: Writing. Well, writing which sort of harks back to, you know, our own particular, you know, the our own cultural tropes, you know, our own traditions and the our own sort of... We are South Asian writers, but we also straddle <laughs> different cultural points, you know, as, you know, I'm sure Catherine and Kavita will agree that uh, it's a very hybrid, you know. What we occupy at the moment is South Asian writing, but with it's like a mosaic, you know. And we want... I think every mosaic is quite unique. And um, what our perspective is South Asian, but it's also filter, through a filter of, you know, uh, living in the, in the Western society. And so we are, tra- we are time travellers and cultural travellers as well. And I think that's what, you know, our group wants to um,
2: share. The only yeah. other point I'd like yeah. to make is sometimes what you do is a response yeah. to a demand that's mm-hmm. made of you. Yeah. So, for example, we came together as a collective. We didn't... Uh, as people who had this... Bicultural, tricultural mm-hmm. background, mm-hmm. we didn't pigeonhole ourselves mm-hmm. as the whole Gahani until we were asked to. So, you know, we were asked as a group to produce uh, new stories on the theme of introductions for the radio, for Radio 4, for example. But they said, well, what is your group? And um, b- uh, your group should mm-hmm. have a name. So, you know, we didn't... Then we said, fine, we, w- we will. We, what is our ethos? Our ethos is that, okay, we're... Um, we, will, we had to limit it in a way ourselves. We actually have Middle Eastern yeah. people in the group, but then yeah. we kind of said, oh, yeah. okay, we'll yeah. make it South Asia, yeah. which is fairly large, as I say, for us. Mm-hmm. It's, it, um, oh, yeah. and everybody here, you know, has come from a different place and has a different upbringing out or, of or the 10 people. And we'll find a name that, that fits us, and it, the whole honey was because we have this 360-degree perspective on the world, mm-hmm. Uh, that's why it's the whole, the whole Kahani, which is the complete story. And so some of it is responding to demand. We might not want to pigeonhole ourselves, mm-hmm. but if that's what um, you want, um, it's not that we did it. So it's very hard to describe what is South Asian writing. We all wrote different mm-hmm. things. Uh, and a lot of the stories are set in, in England, um, or uh, yeah. England, mm-hmm. Malaysia, yeah. um, India, mm-hmm. different places. Um, And some people had characters who are, you know, and the characters are not necessarily uh, South Asian. But I guess the the only thing about us is that we all, our ethnic origin is from South Asia and everything else can be anything. Mm -hmm. Yes, but I think it's worth picking up what
3: uh, Kavita said, that I don't think as South Asian writers we should pigeonhole ourselves to only write about oppressed women um, undergoing forced marriages, mm-hmm. that sort of no. thing. I mean, that, that isn't the, the, the lived experience of, of South Asians in Britain nowadays, necessarily. Mm-hmm. So part of what we wanted to do was say, look, we have this pretty wide range of diversity. Here are our perspectives from South Asians. I mean, my Background is Malaysian. I was actually born in Australia, so you know I'm, I'm certainly not coming at it from the perspective of somebody who's who's lived in, in Asia all their lives and is coming here and is exploring a new country. So I think it's it's really a chance to to raise consciousness of the different types of perspective that you can have as a South Asian in Britain now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. <laughs>
4: Um, what do you think editors could learn from the way that you give feedback in your group? Because I imagine it's far more supportive than you would typically get from somebody working on what you've written.
3: Um, yes, I would say the first thing is potentially be nicer. Um, that's, it, we don't have a, a core mission statement for our group, but one of the things that we really do try and do is be nice to each other. Um, my, My personal take on this is that, as I said, there's no point in criticism telling you what's wrong with the, a story or a piece unless the criticism acknowledges what's right about it. Mm-hmm. So you can take out everything that's that's bad, mm-hmm. but you need to know what to leave in. And I think a good editor will point that out, or, or should point that out, let's say, um, because yeah, yes. if anything, a writer might not be aware of their strengths. Mm-hmm. So in saying, take out mm-hmm. this piece, rewrite that, put it from a different perspective. It's important to give context to that as an editor, I think, and say, I would like you to Mm. focus on this from a different perspective, not only because it's it could be improved, but because your strength is writing from that perspective. Mm-hmm. So essentially give that type yeah. of context I'm to your family. I worked yeah.
2: with, with a very uh, well-known novelist um, who taught me two things. I mean, I've, uh, I've been running, for example, the Poetry Society stanza for my area for, I don't run it anymore, but I ran it for eight years. So uh, you have a, I have a lot of experience in workshops, and people come in with their different styles, and people come in oversensitive, because this is your baby, your precious, you know, your precious mm-hmm. writing. You can't help but be sensitive about it, but this um, author I worked with taught me, you know, she said two strict workshop rules, and they were first, when you start feedback to somebody, point out the two good things that you saw in there, two things that worked for you, because what's good for you is not good for B, mm-hmm. you know uh, so point out the two things that worked for you, and then instead of pointing out what didn't work for you, suggest what you think could happen and the person can go, and the The more you workshop, the stronger you get at knowing you can consider what everybody has said. The trick is to go home and decide, does it help or hinder you? And that's your decision. Mm. It's your work. But you have to be objective enough to look at what somebody has said without breaking down Mm. and crying and saying, does it help or hinder me? Do I leave it? Do I take it? But as she said, the way to do it is always say what worked for you and instead of saying, this didn't work for me suggest yeah, what might work. Mm-hmm. Your suggestion might be hopeless, but that mm-hmm. person might think uh, maybe this thing that's needs right. needs some mm-hmm. improvement. Mm-hmm. There's somebody else had yeah. that gentleman there had a question. Yeah, and then we've got.
3: Um, I'm kind of interested in the short story collection. I've, I've submitted to quite a few anthologies where it's open submission. Yeah. So uh, I've never been commissioned. Mm-hmm. So this is effectively a commission for your writing groups. How long did
2: you give people to write the stories, and did people come with already written stories, or was it all written from scratch? I
1: think we had, uh, we had quite a bit. Yeah, we had, we had uh, about a year to work on the stories and you know the story of course uh, each story underwent uh, uh, went through a lot of uh, changes you know so what began as a story you know by the time we it finished an anthology was totally you know a different animal altogether so we gave ourselves a year and we've also started work on our next anthology now and we're already in the process of workshopping stories but of course each story will again go through another rewrite and um, and then once we find the publisher will have their own ideas and the editor might come back and say, you know, that, uh, hang on, you know, I don't like this particular flow or this ending has to be changed. So it's very much, uh, you know, an organic, ongoing process.
2: But for guess, this first one, um, the reason the publisher approached us, was yeah. she'd heard the stories on the radio, so we did have a handful that were written mm. for radio, out of which they could, I think we were six. We, when I say six of us, wrote... And three or four could be, could be broadcast, and the others couldn't. So there was some to start with. But mm-hmm. when she showed interest in building that into an anthology, then, yeah, so then, uh, then new through. stories came in, and by that time, the theme yeah. was set. But so I, it's a, it was a bit of a mishmash yeah. to start with, but then there was a long lead time to, to it actually happening.
3: I would say, though, that you need to stick to the deadline yeah, because there will to, yeah. always be people who say, oh, but can I have an extra month, an yes, extra yeah. couple of months? And you really need to be as firm as competition. Yeah. I, I think, I think we were, as a group, <laughs> we are
1: very strict with deadlines and um, you know, just sort of you know, sending reminders that please, can you...
3: Thanks very much for your talk. Um, I'm
4: Takia and I'd just like to know what your tips are for um, launching and publicising um, your books, and using social media or events or
3: all your workshops. Just what's your biggest um, advice? So, yeah. um, for me, I found social media was really helpful. So. Um, I'm probably slightly out of the generation that knows which social media is hot at the moment. I found Twitter very useful, for example, um, to publicize things. Uh, we dropped flyers around, things like that. And um, I think one of the most important things we did, which um, Reshma can probably talk a bit more about, is to organise a launch and to invite an the, yes, the yeah, media. Yeah. So, yes, yes. Because
2: what she's talking about, and Reshma can talk about the event, is that when you have an event, you have something to base that mm-hmm. media campaign around, so you could do a press release or um, <coughs> a social media. But if you're just saying, oh, this book is out, it's slightly yeah. different to saying, uh, having an event yeah. at which you send an invitation, and then around the event you build so that people hear about it, whether they come to the event or not, they think, "Oh yes, something happened yeah if I think you... we
1: went tra- uh, uh, we went about it in a very structured manner, you know first of all, you know because finances also are a big you know problem in terms of launch, you know we found a venue that was willing to host us, uh, and in our case, it was the Indian cultural center, the Nehru center so once we had that base, then we uh, made a list of all the Possible, you know, journalists or uh, magazine editors or people in the know, you know, who are interested in culture or in literature. And we just sent them emails with the flyers and the invites. And we kept sort of... Um, because not everybody replies, you know, so you have to keep on repeating, you know. It's quite... It's almost like being a salesman, you know. You're selling a commodity, you know, which is a terrible thing when it comes to literature, but that's how it is. And then we organized our photo shoot. and uh, And in some instances, we... Also, uh, uh, we, we were lucky that two or three journalists attended the event, so they gave it coverage, you know, and out, and it was almost like a sort of, you know, a, dom- a, a trickle-down effect, you know. When, once uh, it sort of spread in the social media, Twitter, as, you know, Catherine said, and Facebook posts were very useful as well. And then we've got our own website as well. So, you know, we
3: helped to uh, publicize it through these. Yeah, another yeah, thing, so just to add, that yeah, works quite well is to get local universities, universities involved, well, yeah. so people doing yeah. PhDs and MAs and yeah. things like that.
4: My question is focused more about characters and the plots and their marketability. Um, mm-hmm. You did mention briefly about uh, perceptions. And at times people are attuned to uh, think, perceive, and, for example, uh, take it forward. In the crudest way, I'll say, I'm a refugee. People expect a refugee to be very downtrodden, who can't Mm -hmm. speak the language, who's absolutely lost, who has no hope, and is only begging for their food, and is there as as a as a person who's there, as a beggar. Mm -hmm. So I really, really challenge, because I'm an LSC graduate, uh, while going through the asylum process, and I do speak the language. And yes, I have ambitions and dreams to end up at J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs. Uh And that really contradicts their perceptions. So as writers, When you're tackling such challenges, how far can you stretch yourselves? And what about, are you also worried about selling that thing? Because people do want to, as you said, it should grab the reader's attentions. How do you manage that flow or process? Thank you.
2: I I would like to say, first of all, when you first write, don't worry about marketability. Because then you'll get asked questions like, why, you, X, Y, Z, you know. So the first instance, you really write, the strong truth, or what, or whatever it is, if not the truth, the fictionalized version of what you want to get out there, and then you worry about marketability. That is somebody else's problem. Yeah. To say, well, actually, you need to do this, or you need to become like this, or you need to say you're a, you know, say you're a refugee, but also yeah. a Goldman Sachs yeah. uh, employee now, or you know, <laughs> whatever it is. So um, to start with. I would separate the yeah. two very much. So yeah. um, I don't think about marketability. But to be fair, yeah. some maybe yeah. we will yeah. talk about yeah. it more at some point. Obviously, you do want to sell what you write, or at, at least, least have yeah. people read it. I mean, really, it's not about selling. But is somebody reading, well, I've put my, you know, blood, sweat, tears yeah. into sort of thing.
1: And I think readers want to be surprised. You know, I think we do <laughs> a great disservice to you know. We think that they only. No, everybody's tired of the same old stories. You know, we're not. You know, we don't want. They don't want cookie cutter characters. You know, conform to the norm. So, you know, the you know, why not have a refugee who's a kung fu fighter and you know, <laughs> and moonlights as you know, as a you know, a journalist and has a day job as a J.P. Morgan banker. Okay, you know, and that's the whole idea. You know, to keep stretching the boundaries. You know, so you know.
0: Okay. Note, <laughs> yeah. stretching the we are at a town um, there's another creative workshop that starts here at 1.30 so it's a pretty fast turnaround but um, if you would like to ask further questions, um, Rashma, Kavita and Catherine will be upstairs because their book is on sale upstairs um, you can buy copies of Love Across a Broken Map and Rain Check Renewed um, and have them sign it afterwards so if you could um, please join me in thanking the three of them for coming